Hello and welcome. This is the Book of Acts by Word Online. So welcome to the final episode of Series 3. And if you've been following through Series 3, you'll realise that this is Luke telling the story of how the Christian gospel started spreading to the Gentile world. We have two astonishing stories that he's already told. One of Cornelius, the Roman centurion and his family who were miraculously converted in the city of Caesarea uh, through Peter's preaching. And that event was very symbolic for the church, showing a, a shift in emphasis and an opportunity to spread out. Then in the last episode, we looked at a, a, an equally remarkable story about how a very large Roman city, the city of Antioch, 600 kilometers north of Jerusalem, suddenly found a church developing within it amongst the Gentile community. And this church grew very fast. This is the first church we know of in the Gentile world through spontaneous evangelism of refugees from Jerusalem who'd arrived there after the first persecution. The church developed and the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to uh, head up the church. He brought Paul in from nearby Tarsus and we saw in the last episode how this church grew and matured dramatically during the time that Paul and Barnabas were there for at least a year working together in the city. So that's a great story, isn't it? And it looks as though everything is ready for the gospel to just go far and wide. You see, Antioch is a strategic city, very well located to reach uh, further areas to the north, largely in the country we would call Turkey today, known as Asia or Asia Minor with a number of provinces in it, um, a huge area that was the obvious next step for the gospel to go to. So you would imagine at this point that Luke, our author, would just start telling that story because we know it happened, but he doesn't. There's a sudden change of gear now in the story because he takes us all the way back to Jerusalem. We're 600 kilometers north of Jerusalem, but this whole chapter is about Jerusalem because something happens in Jerusalem which is, has the appearance of an attempt, a satanic attempt to crush this movement of expansion by eliminating the overall church leader, Peter. Something very significant happens in Jerusalem which could be a massive setback and it centers around a ruler called King Herod, King Herod Agrippa I, who I'll tell you about in just a minute. So this is a, an explanatory story that Luke gives because here there's a real setback, another outburst of persecution, which God miraculously overturns. So let's follow this very interesting part of the story. And this story begins to illustrate the spiritual battle that we're in as a church, because what we see in our Christian lives, most of us, is times of advance and times of setback. That's a common experience. And what I want to tell you as you're listening to this is this is the very same process uh, described in the early church. It's the same thing happened. And Luke is telling us a story strategically to help us interpret our own Christian experience as well. 
Let's go through uh, some of this story. Very interesting story in uh, Luke, uh, in Acts 12. Acts 12 verses 1 to 4. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So who is this Herod? The name Herod appears in the New Testament in the Gospels and Acts a number of times. And we've got a family here who all have the name Herods, but there are different kings. At the time of Jesus's birth, the king in Judea was Herod the Great. And you'll remember his story from the story of Jesus's birth when he tried to kill the uh, infant boys in Bethlehem. That's Herod the Great. He died shortly after Jesus was born. And then when Jesus was in ministry in Galilee, one of his sons, Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas was ruling that part of the country. And so we see Jesus engaging with another King Herod. And he's ruling on behalf of the Romans in the northern part of the country. But now the king we're talking about here is the grandson of Herod the Great. The next generation. And his full name is Herod Agrippa I. And he only ruled for about three years and the Romans consolidated a lot of power in him. They trusted him. And so they gave him more power than any of the other kings in the area who were working for them. He was very powerful. And so he had the authority to um, punish people with execution, which the Jewish authorities had not previously had. And this explains why he had the power to make such a drastic intervention in the church. So this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, is the man who is initiating another round of persecution. You will remember that the first round of persecution described in earlier chapters at the time of Stephen and his martyrdom was initiated by the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and taken forward by a man called Saul or Paul, until his conversion on the road to Damascus, when it all fizzled out. And the persecution stopped. Luke makes it clear that the church experienced a time of peace because that came to an end. So there's been a time when the church has been able to act freely and move freely with very little hindrance from the authorities. But Herod, the, Herod Agrippa comes in and he changes that. He decides, I'm going to stop this church for reasons that we don't fully know. Historically, he was really against the church. And he felt that the Jewish people generally would be really favorable to him if he took action against the church. So he took into prison and executed one of the most important 
apostles in Jesus's team. James, the brother of John. Because if you have read the Gospels, you'll know there were 12 apostles, but there was an inner circle of close associates with Jesus, just three who he often met with privately, Peter, James, and John. So they would naturally be senior in the team in Jerusalem. And the King, King Herod is able, for reasons we don't know, we don't know the circumstances, he's able to get hold and take into captivity one of these three, James, and he executes him. The first apostle to be martyred. And one of the first martyrs of all, the first one recorded was Stephen, who wasn't an apostle, but he was a well-known preacher and leader in the Jerusalem church. So something really drastic has happened in the city of Jerusalem. Antioch is doing really well, but a crisis is emerging in the mother church because James has been killed and not only that, shortly afterwards, Herod Agrippa uh, manages to identify Peter and take him into captivity. His strategy appears to be to take out the top people in the church. Now that's a strategy of the opponents of the church all over the world today. Many of you will know exactly what I mean. When hostile governments and regimes will identify the key leaders and feel that if they can take them out, the church will wither away. That was Herod Agrippa's strategy. And so he took Peter into prison. And Luke notes in the narrative that it's one of the religious festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of the Passover. That means that lots of people were visiting Jerusalem. It was full of people and Peter was taken into captivity when the city was very crowded with lots of people coming in. And Herod took the decision, it says clearly here, that he would wait until that had all died down before putting Peter on trial and executing him. In other words, to do it quietly. Another strategy of the opponents of the church very often is to get rid of people quietly. It's not a good idea to do it when the city is overcrowded with people who may turn against your action because there was some sympathy for the church amongst the Jewish people, especially people coming in from other places. So his strategy was to eliminate the top people. But he must have heard the story of what happened to the apostles when they were previously imprisoned by the Sanhedrin briefly, as recorded by Luke in an earlier episode of Acts, when the 12 apostles were imprisoned and an angel came and released them from the prison miraculously. And the reason I think he'd heard of this story is there's a detail here which is really surprising. It's about the guard. He handed, them, he handed him over, verse 4, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Now that's a lot of people to guard one man who is in chains. He's put 
a heavy guard on Peter because he doesn't want something odd to happen to him while he's in prison. He's taking no chances that something odd might happen because he's heard these rumors about them escaping from the prison previously. So he's secured him in prison and he's waiting for the Passover to finish and then he's going to execute Peter. And the goal is to neutralize the effect of the church, to demoralize the church so much that it just runs out of energy. And this, of course, will have an impact on this Gentile mission in Antioch, which is being supported by the Jerusalem church. And so can you see what's happening here? Just as God is moving in one place, satanic forces using human wickedness are trying to thwart or prevent the development of God's purposes. This is commonplace in the experience of the church and it's important to discern what's happening and to understand it and Luke is telling us this is what happens here. But just as Herod's malicious plan is reaching its climax and Peter is going to be executed, undoubtedly that's what his plan is, God intervenes because we have to always remember God is sovereign even when opposition is very dangerous and we can't defend ourselves against it. An important lesson for some of us listening to this today. And so we move on to the next part of this chapter because we see another astonishing miracle taking place. Bear in mind as we read this what I said about the guards. There's almost an a sense of humor in the way Luke is telling this story because despite these extra precautions, God is greater. Verses 5 to 11. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea what the angel was, uh, what the angel, uh, was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it when they had walked the length of one street suddenly the angel left him then Peter came to himself and said now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen well, you can't get a more dramatic story than that. Can you see how many precautions 
the authorities had put in place. So many guards, so many chains, a locked cell, a locked gate to the prison. But who woke up while the angel and Peter were walking through the prison? Who noticed what was happening? Those who were awake must have not seen anything. The level of miraculous intervention of this story is staggering. And it's just the night before he was going on trial. If he'd gone on trial, he might have been executed literally the next day. But no, God had other plans. And here we have another example of angelic intervention in the life of the church. This theme emerges through the story of Acts time and time again. And we'll see two examples in this passage, two very different examples. But this first one is remarkable and it reminds me yet again to go back to a verse I've mentioned in the past, but I, I'm very happy to mention it again, that explains the work of angels. Hebrews 1 verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This angel served the church and served Peter and helped the church unbelievably at a moment of tremendous crisis. What would the church have done if two out of the three inner circle of Jesus had been executed at short time? They knew that Herod would then pursue the other apostles and other leaders. He'd be dismantling the church bit by bit until there was nothing left. But no, the story moves in a totally different direction. There's an element of humor in this story. There's some humor about the angel and the guards and the extraordinary way that God overturned the greatest of precautions. But that humor continues in our story because there's another remarkable connection here. Remember the church. They've been praying. They've been calling on the Lord. Please, Lord, save Peter from execution. They knew exactly what could happen because, of course, it had happened to James just a very short period beforehand. And so there's Peter on his own in the night, middle of the night in the city. The angels disappeared. Where does he go? Where does he go next? And Luke tells us the story, verses 12 to 17. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Oh, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. 
Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Well, I sincerely sympathise with Rhoda. She was overwhelmed by this experience that she forgot to open the door. She had to go and tell everybody else and then was saddened when they didn't believe her. But of course, it really was Peter. No, it wasn't a ghost. No, it wasn't his angel. No, it wasn't a dream she was having. It's really Peter. But of course, it was the middle of the night. So people were disorientated. Some may be resting, some awake, some praying, some talking, some eating. We don't know what they were doing, but it's in the night that this event takes place. And it takes place in a prominent house in Jerusalem used by, uh, owned by a lady called Mary, whose uh, son, John Mark, is an important uh, member of the team. And his, his story is very important in the future, so we just need to take note of him. He is the same person who is the author of Mark's Gospel. But we'll come and talk more about him later on when he reappears in our next episode. Now, when Peter comes, it's interesting that he doesn't stay. Why doesn't he stay? Because the authorities would quickly know that he'd escaped. And where would they go? They would go to the prominent meeting places of the church. And they must have known this was a prominent meeting place. And we know there are lots of people gathered together. So people in the street would know Jerusalem's a small place. You can't keep many secrets. So it would be likely that they would be knocking on the door. So he didn't stay. He wanted to keep himself safe. But he gave them a message Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. But which James is this? We've just heard that James the Apostle has been executed. But there's another important James in the Jerusalem church who will feature in the future story. And this James mentioned here is not one of the twelve, but he's Jesus's half-brother who, in the time of Jesus' resurrection, had also been added to the group of apostles. Paul mentions particularly James in 1 Corinthians 15 as having had a resurrection appearance. And he then becomes the pastor and leader of the Jerusalem church, which was probably the function he had at this time, and it certainly was a little bit later on when uh, Luke tells us more about it. So James is like the pastor of the church, the half-brother of Jesus. And his story is a remarkable one too, which we'll tell you more about in a future episode. So Peter wanted to reassure James and the other apostles and the other members of the church that he was okay. And so we move on to the final part of our story. We're reading verse 18 to 23. In the morning, there was no small commotion among, amongst the soldiers as what had to become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. 
Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And he was eaten by worms and died. Now you can hardly get a more dramatic story than this. Because at the beginning of the story, Herod's in total control... He's executed one apostle. He's just about to execute another. He's going to dismember the church, dismantle the church. He's got total control. He's got tremendous power from the Romans. By the end of the story, all the guards of Peter have been executed and the king himself has died unexpectedly in a public location. And by the way, this event is recorded also by the Jewish historian Josephus that he died suddenly and unexpectedly. So this is an incredible turnaround that takes place in these few verses. And an angel appears. And I told you earlier on that angels appear in two different contexts in this story. One is to help the church, and the other is another function that God gives to angels from time to time to be the agents of his judgment. And so God in his sovereignty took Herod Agrippa I out of the situation. He only reigned for three years and he reigned for only three years because of the sovereignty of God. And so the persecution that he started, which could have been enormous because he had more power than any Jewish ruler or any religious council had ever had before, more collaboration with the Romans, more resources at his disposal across the whole country. He could have persecuted the church across the whole country, not just in the city of Jerusalem. That was undoubtedly his plan, but it came to a sudden end. And that's where our story ends. And Luke tells us this story to show us how human wickedness and opposition to the gospel, inspired, no doubt, by evil spiritual power, tried to crush the church a second time and failed. And that meant that the Gentile mission was going to be able to go ahead freely, and that's the topic of our next series. And so Luke brings the story to an end now, and we bring this series to an end because we're moving on to a different series and a different focus of mission in the next talk. He brings it to an end with a summary statement, one short sentence. Now, in series one and series two, we found there was a summary statement at the end. There was a summary statement at the end of the situation of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 6 and verse 7, which reads, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased great rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Then concerning series two in Judea, and Samaria, 
<coughs> and the surrounding area. Acts 9 verse 31 concludes series 2 with, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened by it, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. That's the end of series 2. And now we come to the end of series 3 and we have a similar but shorter statement about this particular period. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So God's purposes are proving unstoppable despite demonic and human resistance. And so as we bring this episode to an end, a couple of thoughts by way of reflection. First of all about martyrdom. Martyrdom is a real cost that the church pays in every generation when it is expanding and taking risks and uh, uh, receiving opposition. But martyrdom ultimately doesn't hold the church up. There's a great cost to the individual, their family and friends. But in their sacrifice, the next generation and those who follow are able to continue and are inspired by the example. And so the, the example of James the Apostle who died inspired that generation to carry forward. And there's an interesting contrast by way of reflection between James and John, the two brothers close to Jesus. James is the first to die out of the twelve and John is the last. He lived the longest and probably died a natural death at a great age. They were brothers together and their lives had totally different outcomes on the same mission. And this can happen. On mission, people's lives have different outcomes. Some minister and work for a short period and their things are held up or they have difficulties or they die uh, early and others, God gives grace for many years. We never know which it's going to be for us. But we see faithfulness in James who faced death true to Christ. And we see faithfulness in John who was true to Christ through decades of service in many different contexts. And my final reflection is just to say again that angels are a reality who are still ministering spirits serving the church today in the 21st century unseen and miraculously intervening and they will intervene frequently when we are praying as the church was doing at the beginning of this episode we don't look for them we don't worship them we very rarely see them but they are serving us that the kingdom may advance so at this point, we end our series. Come and join us for series four as the, the story expands in a very exciting way through the leadership of Paul and Barnabas. I hope to see you for series four. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.